Welcome to Highbrow Lowbrow, the show where our podcast hosts Steve Paul and Dan Slattery pit high art against low culture. In this episode, we look at the work of Tennessee Williams on screen and two film adaptations of his play starring Elizabeth Taylor. Dan argues that Suddenly Last Summer is a near-perfect adaptation of Williams' work, mixing Southern Gothic and queer cinema with aplomb, whereas Steve argues that the little scene, Boom, may have been a box office bomb, but is an essential episode in the Liz Taylor, Richard Burton soap opera played out on screen. Beware spoilers. Enjoy the show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this special episode of Highbrow Lowbrow. Tonight, we will be looking at a double bill of the works of Tennessee Williams on film, both films starring Elizabeth Taylor and a cast of very well-known Hollywood, British and international actors. These are two very special films. They're also films that perhaps haven't been on your radar before now. So I'll hand over to my podcast co-host, Dan Slattery, who will be making this week's highbrow choice. Good evening, listeners. My highbrow choice is Tennessee Williams' play Suddenly Last Summer, as filmed by Joseph Mankiewicz in 1959. The play was originally written in 1958, and it stars Elizabeth Taylor as Catherine, Catherine Hepburn as Violet, and Montgomery Clift as a surgeon called John. Now, the film opens with Montgomery Clift performing an operation which is a frontal lobotomy in a converted library posing as an operating theatre and there are students on the balcony watching him. And during the operation, part of the balcony gives way and there's a power outage. And of course, he manages to complete the operation, but he's absolutely annoyed with the standards under which he is working. So he goes to see the hospital administrator who tells them there may be a possibility for a new hospital within six months, but there's a money issue. So enter Violet Venable, who's kind of a society widow, who's wealthy, and who makes an offer to the doctor that she'll fund the new hospital if he performs a frontal lobotomy on her niece, Catherine. And the reason why she wants a frontal lobotomy of Catherine is that Catherine has been found in a psychiatric hospital in Paris, having accompanied her son, Sebastian, on holiday. And Sebastian has died under suspicious circumstances. And Catherine keeps coming out with these statements to his death, which Violet finds upsetting. So basically, she wants Montgomery Clift to perform a frontal lobotomy on Elizabeth Taylor to shut her up, and then he'll get his hospital. Mercedes McCambridge also plays Catherine's mother, billed as Mrs. Holly, and she's quite weak-willed in this. Violet is obviously the more dominant sister. So she and her son, George, Catherine's brother, want Catherine to have the operation, because if she does, then Violet will release money from Sebastian's will that is due to them. Watching this, it's actually quite chilling as to how far Violet will go to achieve this aim. And why this is, is because she has an incredible amount of mother love for her late son, Sebastian. The parallel that I drew from this was if you see the John Frankenheimer version of The Manchurian Candidate with Angela Lansbury as the mother and Lawrence Harvey as the son, the strong overtones of incest that are in that film carry over to this now it's not quite the same intensity but she worships her dead son and will have nothing bad said against him both her and Catherine when they're referring to his death they just go suddenly last summer and then it pauses 
So they don't want to go any further. What Montgomery Clift's character has to do is try and get through and see what was it that happened to Sebastian that caused Kathy to be hospitalized and causes Violet to be quite upset whenever his name is mentioned. And eventually, whenever they refer to tales about watching turtles getting slaughtered and then listening to a tin orchestra, that gradually gives you clues as to what happened. In the end, Montgomery Clift has to administer a truth serum to Catherine. And it comes out that what used to happen was mother and son used to go on holiday to Europe. And Sebastian was homosexual. And mother used her looks to attract young men that Sebastian could then seduce. So basically she procured young men for him. And the last summer she was unwell, so his cousin Kathy went instead. She became suddenly aware of why mother and son would go on holiday. Sebastian obviously came from a wealthy family and he would pay for these favours. At one point, he's surrounded by boys begging for money and he rejects them and he wants to leave, but then they chase after him. He reaches the top of a hill and according to Catherine, the boys tore Sebastian apart and ate pieces of his flesh like goblins. And so once the truth is revealed, then, of course, the surgeon isn't going to perform the lobotomy. And Violet has a breakdown and speaks to the surgeon as if he's Sebastian. And then the hospital administrator asks the surgeon if there's any truth in what Catherine said. And, well, it's kind of left slightly ambiguous, but then she and the surgeon have formed a relationship and they walk away together. So a bit about the play and why the film works and why it doesn't. It was written as a one-act play, which was also paired with a play called Something Unspoken, and it was a Broadway double bill called Garden District. And the plot is pretty much the same. It's more compact, obviously, but it's the same in that the mother of Sebastian wants to, needs to be quietened. Gore Vidal was brought in to expand the script, and it's a two-hour movie, and you can kind of see it becomes two acts. The first act is when Catherine is in a private hospital, and then when she's moved to the state hospital so that the surgeon can monitor her more closely, that's like the second act, and that's when the story begins to develop. And there are some lovely monologues which are quite colourful in their description, but it does drag. That's the only problem I have with it, that it, the material's been expanded too much. It could have gone to 90 minutes and it would have been fine. We could do a whole podcast on how Tennessee Williams and the elements of homosexuality in his play were badly treated by Hollywood. But this one comes the closest to saying homosexual without actually using the H word. And how it gets away with it on the production code is to basically say it describes his lifestyle as deviant. And the inference is it was his lifestyle that caused him to be killed. And that's why it was able to flaunt the production code in the time that saw a streetcar named Desire, and Cat in a Hot Tin Roof, um, the homosexual elements in them downplayed quite substantially. So it's the negative portrayal of homosexuality is what allows this film to mention it so strongly without actually saying what it is. But people are left in no doubt as to what uh, Sebastian's sexuality was. Catherine Hepburn is phenomenal as the mother from the moment she arrives, kind of coming down in her stair lift. She's quite the dominant female figure in this. It is highly autobiographical. Tennessee Williams's mother was quite dominant and another dominant mother figure features in The Glass Menagerie. And also he did have a sister called Rose who spent time in a mental institution and did have a frontal lobotomy performed on her and 
he would always donate income from his plays for her treatment. And then when she died, it upset him greatly. Tennessee Williams was homosexual, but never really came out of the closet as far as I know. But that is why there's a strong theme throughout his plays about people confused about their sexuality. Elizabeth Taylor, Tennessee Williams was um, reticent about her casting because he said she's so worldly wise. How would surely she would know what Violet's plans were, whereas Kathy is quite naive? I would say no, because Violet's plans are so malevolent. That, I mean, unbelievably so that you think surely nobody could be that evil. Surely nobody could go to these lengths to maintain their son's reputation, wanting a niece to be operated on, to effectively be silenced and paying a surgeon to do so. But as the play develops, you think, yes, she would go that far. And you don't know whether she's evil or insane. But certainly by the end, um, and when she's seen going back up in her lift, you're no doubt that she's lost her mind. Montgomery Clift wasn't originally cast to play the Doctor, but Elizabeth Taylor insisted that he be cast. Montgomery had a um, painkiller addiction at the time, due to a car crash a couple of years earlier, which affected his ability to say his lines. There's a long monologue that he has that had to be done in multiple takes, apparently. The rest of the cast, Hepburn and Taylor especially, were very supportive of him and were quite happy to work around the limitations. The director, Joseph Mankiewicz, on the other hand, wanted to keep getting him fired and kept asking the producer, Sam Spiegel, to, could he do so? And, of course, that never happens. And I think he's brilliant in the role. But on the last day of shooting, when Catherine Hepburn had established that she, her services were no longer required, she went up and spat in the face of uh, Mankiewicz because of the, of the way he had treated Flift. Accounts differ as to whether she also spat in Spiegel's face as well. But it shows what a fraught shoot it was. Malcolm Arnold was down to do the soundtrack and he did some initial themes before walking away from the project because he found the material so upsetting. And it is quite a strong watch. You know, it doesn't shirk away from showing the inside of a mental institution. It portrays the whole ethos of psychiatric treatment and frontal lobotomies, obviously in a negative light. And I thought it's a step back from the work that had been done by Olivia de Havilland's film The Snake Pit, which had done a lot to educate people in mental health issues and try and improve their treatment. And this seems to have been a step back. But then given the negative experiences Tennessee Williams had in his own life and his sister Rose, I can probably see why that's the case. I do like it partly because it does stay as close to the material as possible. I think everybody performs well in it. Catherine Hepburn just plays the dominant mother well, and she would eventually do the same kind of character in a production of The Glass Menagerie later on in her career. There are parallels between Sebastian and the religious figure Saint Sebastian, who has been adopted by the LGBT community as a kind of as a gay icon, because at one point Kathy mentions about the Spanish sun blazing down from the sky, that God's white hot eye from heaven glaring upon Sebastian. The only criticism I have about it is the negative way in which it portrays a homosexual character. But this was the 1950s. There was a, a rather strict production code. And I suppose the compromise that had to be made was, well, if you portray him in a negative light, then we can be more explicit as to what he is and to who he is. In a way, it's quite good that they are able to get so close to the source material, unlike in previous adaptations, where they've had to skirt around the issue of homosexuality. 
Yes. Well, I mean, that was masterful synopsis in terms of how you brought all the characters together. All of the backstories are kind of complicated. And I was thinking I enjoyed this a lot. And I was just wondering with the production code and with some of the censorship issues, which were very dominant at the time, did they inadvertently help the film keep its power? Because I think if you made it today... First of all, it'd have to be a period piece because in the Western world, homosexuality is fully accepted, almost fully accepted. And, you know, this this man could be, Sebastian could be married and even adopted a child or living a uh, relatively normal, happy life. That some of the directors who managed to work around the production code at the time, like Hitchcock and whatnot, I think it made for better movies inadvertently. I think you're right. Ironically, it is stronger in the kind of compromises they had to make and how Sebastian was portrayed, let them get closer to the material. Sam Spiegel, I think, actually did put a statement in the press pack. Let me just see if I've got a copy of it here. Yes, the press book for Suddenly Last Summer contained a statement by producer Spiegel about the film's morality. He even writes, some may be shocked by certain elements involved in the telling of Suddenly Last Summer. The shock values in this picture are used for their dramatic impact to strengthen the moral intent of the picture. At no point is there a hint or suggestion that corruption could be pleasurable or that cruelty or immorality might be rewarded. The protagonist who we never see in the film was a man who used others as objects for his personal pleasure. And yes, Sebastian is portrayed as kind of a user. But then so is his mother. So kind of they're both out for their own pleasure. She wants to be see her son be happy and she gets her pleasure through that. And he wants to, obviously, if he go on holiday, what happens on holiday stays on holiday, presumably, is the idea behind that. And I only noticed, I mean, I have seen the film more than once and I only noticed it this time watching it for this podcast. When he's running up the hill, did you notice the old lady sitting on the steps as he runs past? Were they completely impassive? Yes, but she's a skeleton as he runs past. Oh, and then, yes. Yeah, now that you mention it, yes. Yes. Yeah. And then when the camera pans back to Elizabeth Taylor, it's actually a woman. So I'm sure uh, with that being in it, I'm sure there are other little signals in it as well, which I have missed. And, you know, I deliberately wouldn't go and seek out what the kind of hidden things are, because I think if I watch it again, I'll probably see some other little signs and portents in there. It's little things like that that add to it, and also them talking about the hungry birds, using metaphors to refer to what happened. And then when you hear the true story, you know that they've been telling you all along, but just using metaphors to do it. Yes. Listening to the tin orchestra was about the kids banging the saucepans as they ran after Sebastian, the hungry birds were the children and the young men, and also they think they don't be mentioned about turtles as well. So... The story is being told just not as explicitly as you need until the end. And in fact, the flashback is quite, you never see the face of Sebastian, but you do see him being chased and you do see people clawing at him as Elizabeth Taylor watches. So it gets away with as much as it can in showing you what happened. It's not all just Elizabeth Taylor telling you what happened. You know, you're seeing a bit of it as well. So it's quite powerful for its day, I have to say. It still has a bit of a punch now. So, I mean, I'm just looking at the certificate of it. It's got a 15, and I think that probably is because of the violence and the probably the homosexual element as well it means that it still gets certified a 15. Well, it's drawing onto Zen sexually because Elizabeth Taylor's swimsuit was transparent. Oh, yes. And and obviously, um, she makes a point of that. She's, she's wondering why she's wearing it. It was so suggestive, and we know why she's wearing it. 
Uh, but I believe it actually caused a run on that particular swimsuit. It became very popular. She was the most beautiful woman, you know, in Hollywood at the time. Uh, certainly one of the most beautiful women. So it's certainly playing with the audience's, you know, desires, but also kind of cultural fears of homosexuality at the time. But I guess if this is pushing at the edges of censorship, you know, a generation is a long time because Liz Taylor became a great gay icon mm-hmm. and um, uh, AIDS activist for people who were suffering with AIDS, which in the 80s wasn't particularly fashionable to help AIDS sufferers. I'm just looking at the theatrical release poster and also the cover of my Blu-ray. And yes, the poster, the picture of Elizabeth Taylor is her in that swimsuit. So you're absolutely right. Uh, oh, another thing, and this is more of just a side note, I was just like, I wonder if Catherine Hepburn's anger on set was purely at the shabby way Mankiewicz was treating uh, Montgomery Cliff, because I think any actress or actor would absolutely love to deliver lines that evil. And I think it almost looks like she's having a great time during some of those monologues. Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, she, she is so so frightening. And, you know, and just, like I say, the depths to which she will sink to achieve her aim. She's utterly ruthless, and then some. And what is equally as frightening is, is how complicit her sister is in the whole plan. I mean, this is her sister trying to shut up her daughter, and the, the weak sister, uh, Mrs. Holly, is just going along with it. I mean, yes, you've got to buy Williams does write some very strong characters. The other one in the two-act play doesn't get performed so much now, and this tends to get performed on its own. And I think as a one-act play, and I was hoping to get to read it before we did this podcast but we don't appear to have a copy in the library just to see how compact it was i imagine it works a bit better as a play but that's not to say it's a bad movie it's just a slightly over long one i thought that seems to be my common complaint steve all the movies i watch are too long <laughs> yes yeah well well barry london that's uh that's about three or four movies isn't it um <laughs> No, I mean, I, I was very intrigued by this and I felt like he got most of the decisions right. I can't remember thinking much about the length, but I suppose I'd probably agree with that because I remember thinking it had a terrific start and a terrific end and maybe the middle sacked a bit. Funnily enough, Montgomery Cliff played Freud on screen in, in John Huston's biopic and there was a lot about you know psychoanalysts and bringing out our fears, our traumas from the past that we've buried deep inside us which was a common theme at the time. And also, in terms of genre, I thought there were elements of Southern Gothic. It reminded me of a, of a later Liz Taylor film, which maybe we'll have to do one day, um, another John Huston film, uh, Reflections in a Golden Eye, which is based on a novel by Carson McCullers and stars Marlon Brando and Liz Taylor and Robert Forster. Yeah, it's a fantastic movie. And I, would you say it's pretty high up in, of all the TV film adaptations of which there have been many of Tennessee Williams' work? I would put it up there, definitely, along with the Paul Newman-directed version of The Glass Menagerie. That's another one I like. And Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire is very good. Uh, I'm just reading here about where Elizabeth Taylor, following her final monologue, where she describes the Sebastian murder, burst into tears and could not be consoled because she used a bit of method and tapped into her grief over the 1958 death of her third husband, Mike Todd. And the other thing I just remember reading about Elizabeth Taylor with Reflections of a Golden Eye, I think that was another one she wanted Montgomery Clifton, but he died before filming started. Let me just check that for you, Steve. I can well believe that, yeah, but Montgomery Clift had that prior relationship with John Huston because he starred in Freud, which I mentioned, and also The Misfits. And he was really one of the greatest actors of his generation, and he was gay, which she had to keep hidden. And he died young, and it was a tragedy. 
yes, it says here apparently she did want Montgomery Clift to co-star with her and then determined to secure his involvement in the project, Taylor even offered to pay for his insurance, but he died from a heart attack before filming began. Well, Dan, shall we move on to my grizzly choice? Yes, see that, let's, let's lighten the mood somewhat with yours. Yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> well, the best way to describe this is if suddenly last summer pushes everything to the limit but never quite goes beyond that into the absurd, my lowbrow choice for this week hits the absurd in about five minutes and languishes there for the rest of the movie. So my lowbrow choice for this special episode on Tennessee Williams is Boom. Filmed in 1968, it's based on Tennessee Williams' play The Milk Train Doesn't Stop Here Anymore, and Elizabeth Taylor plays Flora Sissy Goforth, the richest woman in, in the world who lives on her own private island in the Mediterranean. The island is actually part of Sardinia, where they filmed. She has a head of security played by Michael Dunn, an actor who suffered from dwarfism and wears this ridiculous South American kind of cordillo military uniform. It's, it's very on PC. She spends her hours dictating in memoirs to her personal secretary, Miss Black, who she calls Blackie, who is played by the beautiful uh, Joanna Shimkus, who basically quit acting after she married Sidney Poitier and they started a family. So Sissy is a monster. She bullies all of her staff. She's always yelling at them over small things. The crux of the matter is she's dying and she's in complete denial of it. She's on an assortment of pills and, and various medical treatments. She's basically being kept alive because you know, she's got so much money she can afford this huge staff. She has five previous husbands. It's not quite revealed what happened to all of them, but she's clearly inherited their wealth somehow. Then one day, a mysterious stranger turns up on her private island. His name is Christopher Flanders, and he's played by Richard Burton. He's trying to get onto the island, he's thrown off a boat, swims ashore, and he's immediately attacked by Sissy's guard dogs. Now, to help him recuperate, Blackie takes him to a private room. Blackie is a young widow, and he's the first man she's attracted to since her husband's death, because uh, Flanders, Burton, is good at reading people, and he immediately knows people's desires and weaknesses. He knows how to work people, shall we say. Now, Sissy refuses to see Burton at first, so she sends for her friend, an English baron known as the Witch of Capri, played by the marvellous Noel Coward. And she has a dinner party with him. And, and this is where it kind of veers into camp classic territory. She has a dinner party with the Witch of Capri, and she's wearing a hair done up so bizarrely and erect with all of these uh, rosebuds and stuff in it. It looks like she's got the entire Chelsea flower show crabbed into her hair. Anyway, the Witcher Capri tells her that Christopher Flanders is in fact the angel of death and that his modus operandi is to call on rich women the night before the undertaker. Now, Sissy is concerned about this, so she feels the need to get rid of Richard Burton. But as soon as she starts interacting with him, even though she's as rude to him as she is to everyone else, she's kind of despicable. She's attracted to him and starts reminiscing about the great loves of her life and she hasn't enjoyed intimacies for a while so she's kind of tempted to take him as a lover and there's a lot of kind of bitchiness going back and forth he kind of spurns her advances and then she taunts him by refusing to um, give him food shall we say because he's kind of lived this nomadic existence so that's all i'll say about the plot for now as you can tell it's all rather bizarre even by tennessee williams standards but a little bit of backstory. So Liz Taylor and Richard Burton first met at a Hollywood party in the early 1950s that was to celebrate Burton's film, The Robe. 
Then they reconnected during the filming of Cleopatra in the early 1960s, which was the most expensive film ever made at the time and a huge box office flop. They had an extramarital affair on the set of that film, which caused a massive scandal that was reported in newspapers throughout the world. They married in 1964. Over the course of their relationship, they made 11 films together, divorced, married again, divorced again, starred in a play together. And any film with Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor is always going to arouse interest, even if the film isn't particularly good. Boom was directed by Joseph Losey, who is one of the really fascinating figures in British and American film. American film director's career started with film noirs in the 50s, late 40s. He did a remake of M, and he did an excellent film noir called The Prowler. And he was a Communist Party member. Now, it's fair to say that in the 1940s, the Communist Party in America was a much more kind of broad coalition, not exactly the Soviet-loving communists you can imagine today, included liberals and whatnot. But obviously, to be a communist was very dangerous. He turned down directing a film nominally titled I Married a Communist, which was supposed to be anti-communist propaganda. He later found out that was a test. If you turned down that film, you came under suspicion. So he was blacklisted, he came to the UK, and his style of filmmaking changed. He started making very art house films like The Servant and Accident, collaborations with Dirk Bogard and Harold Pinter. And here's a name drop for you. I was talking about Joseph Losey with the wonderful critic Eddie Muller, Eddie, the czar of noir Muller. And Eddie told me that if you watch Joseph Losey's films he made in Britain, there's so much about the class structure and English society, archaic English society, that you wouldn't think this guy could be anything but English. But he was from La Crosse, Wisconsin. And he was a kind of stone-faced, slightly misanthropic man and very tight-lipped. In fact, Michael Caine tells an anecdote about Joseph Losey when they were making a film called The Romantic Englishwoman. Josie was so tight-lipped, Michael Caine bet one of the crew that uh, I can can make Joseph Losey crack a smile before the filming of this film ends. I bet you 10 bob. And he said he lost hands down. He just couldn't get any reaction out of him. Losey was quite an acclaimed director. And obviously Liz Taylor and Richard Burton were huge stars. They probably peaked the two of them because a year or two earlier they made Who's Afraid of a Virginia Woolf, which is a marvellous movie. But despite all the good production values on this film, you know, the house looks stunning uh, that Sissy lives in and the island is beautiful and there's a John Barry score, which almost feels like a a bit James Bondian. There's a very playful tune on the sitar, which plays again and again, particularly in the first half. And it suggests that this angel of death visiting is a story that recurs again and again in life, which is quite engaging. The film just doesn't work. It doesn't work (laughs) at all. And it's kind of hilariously bad, and which is why I'm recommending it as my lowbrow choice. It came on my radar because I was watching an interview with the American director, John Waters, and he said how much he loved this film and he thought it was a camp classic. Basically, an art house movie gone wrong because almost every decision that they made in the making of this film is is slightly kooky and, and just bizarre. It probably didn't help that Taylor and Burton were having Bloody Marys for breakfast before they started filming. Their age was beginning to show, but Taylor is woefully miscast because Tennessee Williams wrote the part of Sissy as an old woman. And it makes much more sense for her to be an old woman because 
one, she's terminally ill, and two, she's amassed a great fortune. And, and Taylor was only in her 30s when she made this film. Fortunately, she looks quite a bit older. I mean, she's still beautiful, but you can tell the kind of the hard living is, is beginning to show. Uh, apparently, during one scene, they, they were filming inside the house, which was, you know, a fake house just built for, for the film. And, and Taylor kind of looked around and said, I like this place. Can we buy it? And then it had to be explained to her that there was no plumbing and there was, you know, <laughs> there was there's no infrastructure. She had another close call because a trailer was put right on the cliff edge. And one morning she stepped out of a trailer and the moment she stepped out, it actually gave way and toppled off the cliff and she nearly fell to her death. But in spite of all of these things, the problems with it, the, the story is intriguing. And there are camp moments which are extremely funny and just kind of woefully misjudged and give you those what were they thinking type vibe. For instance, one moment that, that we allowed, I don't know if it's a kidney dialysis machine or something like that, that Liz Taylor needs to be hooked up to. And she describes it as a, a baby buggy from Mars and just throws it over the cliff edge. There's another moment when she's uh, coughing blood into a tissue and one of the characters says, oh, look, it's a paper rose. There's a moment when Noel Coward during the dinner compares the smell of fish to menstruation. It's, it's all horribly misjudged. But my favourite line is when Burton, who, because his clothes are all wet and everything, when he arrives on the island, she gives him uh, a Japanese kimono to wear, which comes with a samurai sword. So he's walking around in this like totally bizarre outfit. And he says, actually, oh, we've met before and I could always drop by on you sometime. And she says, well, passports expire and so do invitations, which I think is just a wonderfully bitchy line. It was a box office disaster. I think The Milk Train Doesn't Live Here Anymore is far too long a title for a film. So it was titled Boom, and there's very references to Boom in the stories, partly when the waves are crashing against the rocks of the island. Richard Burton says, boom, boom. And then halfway through the publicity campaign, because it was losing money fast, they added an exclamation mark to the title. So boom, exclamation mark, which didn't improve its uh, box office performance. The play itself is rarely performed, but there's been a few notable productions, one with Tallulah Bankhead as Sissy, another in London in 1997, where Rupert Everett played Sissy Goforth in full drag so that seemed to embrace the kind of camp classic element to it and I, i'll end on a positive john waters later met elizabeth taylor and right away said to her oh i love that film you did boom and she just went off a rocker she was like how dare you mention that movie to me it was awful and he was like well i like it like it would change the subject quickly but according to waters it was tennessee williams's favorite film of, of his plays and he did adapt the script so he does bear some responsibility now i'm not a tennessee williams scholar i, I do enjoy his work i dip into it and i can't verify that story and it's not around to ask but Apparently, he thought it was a favourite film of his plays. Maybe it was the humour, maybe it was the campness. Who knows? Uh, maybe he thought some of the um, other film adaptations were a bit too safe, like maybe Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, because that one could barely mention, well, could have mentioned homosexuality and couldn't even hint at it. And, and this one is, is just kind of riotously good fun. So if you like camp classics and if you like So Bad It's Good films, you're going to enjoy this. Firstly, because... The production's values are consistently high, so it's a very well-made, bad film. I would probably compare it to something like Zardos, 
where if you listen to John Borman or even Sean Connery talking about Zordos, the ideas were really interesting. It's about this society in the future which cannot die and therefore the rich people cannot die and therefore they've become extremely unhappy. They've lost their libido. They're literally rotting because they're losing their youth and they've no enjoyment in society. And all of that all sounds very interesting, but about two minutes into Zordos, there's a line one of the gods says, the penis is bad, the gun is good. And with that line, you just burst into laughter and realize you're going to laugh throughout the rest of the movie. And this is kind of similar. It's just too strange, too bonkers. It's not played tongue in cheek. It's played fairly straight, but it is enjoyable. And um, now I have to brace myself for your questions, Dan, because I know this, this was a risky choice on my behalf. Well, Steve, I have to say, every time you say Zardos, all I can think of is Sean Connery with a porn star moustache and wearing Y-fronts. Well, there you go. If you want uh, an image that's going to stick in your head yeah. uh, and uh, commercially, that probably helped. Yes, but not in a good way, Steve. I mean, just, and especially now you say that line is, oh no. Uh, I mean, it's been years since I've seen it and I'm really not going to go and see it now. Again, now, I think I'd sooner sit through The Exorcist too. No, actually I wouldn't. Um, there's another terrible Richard Burton film. I wanted to like this, and I did really want to give this a go. I mean, I, you you did warn me it was pretty dire, and I think when I read that the Elizabeth Taylor role was meant to be for an older woman and the Richard Burton role for a younger man, I thought that would make more sense, and I could see where this was going. One question is, how much in terms of T Taylor and Burton's relationship was this art imitating life? Well, it was pretty early in their marriage. They married in 64, and this was three or four years later, released in 68. So I don't know if the cracks were already beginning to show. They enjoyed a jet-set lifestyle, and it seemed like they, they enjoyed to make any film that was in an exotic location. <laughs> so they might have thought, oh, well, you know, two months in Sardinia sounds nice, rather than actually having any belief in the project. But, you know, Liz Taylor had this professional relationship with Tennessee Williams, and I, I, I know she probably believed in him but she probably took one look at this. It hadn't done well in its debut on stage. People who worked with Taylor and Burton would often say that it was tense because they did not hold back. They would argue in public and it would make you feel uh, extremely uncomfortable at times. I'll tell you one story is that when Roger Moore was producing a film that Liz Taylor eventually starred in called Nightwatch, he went round to their hotel room in London or wherever it was and, and, and was describing her character to Liz Taylor and Richard Burton was nursing a drink listening and Roger Moore was saying, well, your character, Liz, will be sexy and vivacious and intelligent and the apple of every man's eye and every man's desire. And Richard Burton cut in and said, oh, you should hire someone like Raquel Walsh. She'd be excellent. <laughs> he says you could, you could cut the tension with a knife. Uh, yeah, but but that isn't that isn't that the whole point of of Taylor and Burton is like you watch the films and you're not so much interested in in the narrative of the film. You're really wondering, well, what stage was this? Were yeah. they still in love? Did they hate each other? Well, that's the thing. When I started watching it in that respect, it suddenly became almost like watching a documentary, and that made it more interesting. Once I thought well this this isn't working as a film it's not working as a play i've kind of figured out early on oh was he meant to be death the samurai and imagery must have gone right over my head unless it, maybe it's meant to be important of death but no coward is always good value for money but i wasn't quite sure and i don't think the film was quite sure what it was meant to be was it meant to be a serious meditation on growing old was it meant to be a, just a big camp farce 
was it meant to be a comedy was it just meant to be a Burton and Taylor vehicle I wasn't sure what this film wanted to be and I'm not sure even the cast and crew knew what they were making but it certainly looked nice and Burton and Taylor do fire well off each other but as a film I'm not surprised it bombed especially with a name like Boom it's kind of that the jokes just write themselves really don't they I think you're absolutely right the Noel Coward steals the picture yeah and he he was quite unwell at the time uh, and you see him being carried up the mountain uh, I mean, he died in 1973, and this was only a few years prior, but he, st- he still gives it his all. And, and then you think of, well, The Witch of Capri. Now, uh, I'm not a classical scholar or anything, but I've, I've read several Robert Graves novels, and therefore I know, and I've seen the BBC production of uh, I, Claudius, mm-hmm. that Capri was the island that the Emperor Tiberius retired to and lived a life of absolute depravity. So whenever I heard the word Capri, I was just like, it was a tiny island. You wouldn't, you wouldn't pick that without maybe nodding towards Tiberius. Well, I, I don't know. I think the problem is, is that there's too much symbolism and not enough coherence between it. But I think with the passage of time, it, it is a fascinating time capsule movie. And it's probably Joseph Losey's funniest movie inadvertently, <laughs> because like I say, Michael Caine couldn't make him laugh. And you know what Michael Caine's like. He, he yeah. loves to joke around. And yeah. the films Joseph Losey made were either film noir or later art house with Bogard and Pinter and pretty serious. And, and he was pretty good at art house movies. And this, this one goes completely off the rails. And it's interesting. It's, it's a real oddity in his career. But he worked with Liz Taylor. I think prior to this, they did one called Secret Ceremony. Uh, which is set in London with Robert Mitchum and, and Liz Taylor. That's a strange one. And again, that one goes a bit off the wires. I think Liz Taylor really peaked with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in terms of her getting really good roles. And it was around this time that she started to make really strange films like Boom and Secret Ceremony. And another one with Richard Burton, which is really strange, which is called Hammersmith is Out. And it's an updating of the Faustian myth directed by Peter Ustinov. And I, I, can't, I watched it this summer. <laughs> I cannot even begin to describe how strange that film is. It's, she plays like a white trash diner waitress who falls in love with Bo Bridges, who is this uh, hospital attendant in a mental hospital who lets out Richard Burton, who's one of the patients. But it turns out Burton is either Mephistopheles or Faust. They make a Faustian pact and they start taking over the world together. It actually makes like this one sound really sound really good, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So <laughs> I'm not sure there's much more I can say. <laughs> I mean, I think John Barry's score is very very good, and it could have been a score in a, in a Bond film, and it's quite good at evoking intrigue and, and making you think. Well, where is this going? Mm-hmm. And and some of the supporting cast. I mean, I think the bit with 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 Michael Dunn as the head of security is just wince inducing, but. Joanna Shimkus is very good and very beautiful and seems to walk away with her dignity intact. As for the rest of the cast, I'm not so sure. <laughs> it was fun to watch. Like I said, once I thought I can just treat this as a Burton Taylor documentary, then it all begins to make some kind of sense, you know. But I don't know how Tennessee Williams thinks it's his best adaptation, but maybe he was joking and people took him seriously. I don't know. Well, I suppose authors like to be contrarians, and who knows? I mean, I assume this is pretty much down at the bottom of most critics' lists of Tennessee Williams adaptations. I mean, can you think of any that you really don't like or even hate more than this one? No. (laughs) 
I do believe actually there was one that was done posthumously of Williams. Let me just check here. Was it loss of a teardrop for diamond? Yes, that was it. And it just got an absolute thumping. It just said it, it should have remained lost. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, there was a time in the 50s and 60s where they were making one Tennessee Williams film after another. And yeah. now maybe it's the settings aren't as fashionable and theatrical movies aren't made as, you know, I'm talking about stagey movies aren't mm-hmm. made as much. I, d- I don't mind watching a, a film that doesn't go beyond the boundaries of the stage that much in terms of the film that embraces its kind of theatrical roots. So that's never really been a problem for me. I know know it is for some people. Some people say, oh, this this should stay on the stage. I'm also quite a big fan of uh, American film theatre. That was an interesting experiment in the 70s. Have you seen any of that? If Lee J. Cobb doing Death for Salesman was part of that, then I think I've seen that because my dad has that. So I think I may have seen one of them. But just what you're saying is the Paul Newman directed version of The Last Menagerie that is a filmed play. It's set on a stage. So you probably get a lot out of that. And I think The Last Menagerie is one that probably could be filmed, although the language would need to be updated. For example, Laura is referred to as a cripple throughout the play, which you couldn't really say now. But then again, you see the in the same way that Sebastian is defined by his sexuality, the whole point of the play is that Mother defines Laura by her disability because she refers to her as a cripple rather than somebody who has a physical impairment. So in a way, I think you could get away with making the glass menagerie again today out of all of them, I imagine. A biopic of Williams would be good. I would actually, that. yes. Yeah, that yeah. would be. Yeah. I don't know if one's yeah. been done. Maybe not. Maybe one should be. Maybe you should be Tennessee Williams, Steve. <laughs> well, yeah, that kind of yeah, very thin moustache and gelled back hair, slick back hair. Um, Actually, I'm just going to Google him just to make sure I've described him correctly. If you are thinking of making a film of Tennessee Williams and would like a young, Ado- like a young Adonis to play him, then <laughs> you could do worse than uh, young Stephen Powell. Yeah, well, I think uh, I'm just looking at the cigarette and the cigarette holder. Uh, the bow tie seemed to be his thing. You don't reckon you could pull that off, Steve? Well, it's been a while since I've done any acting. A cigarette holder would be interesting. But I guess in a way, he kind of was like an old coward in that regard. You know, he was uh, a gadfly and um, a contrarian, a society man, probably always had a great anecdote, uh, always had a drink in his hand, knew everyone. Would have been a blast to have known him and uh, mm. to have heard some of his stories. Oh, probably not. You know, Cardi probably had a right um, thorny comment to come out with as well. Like after Coward's comment on the film The Sea Shall Not Have Them, why not everybody else has? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I imagine yeah. Williams probably had a couple of those up his sleeve as well. Yes, well, actors could be very naughty back then because this, you know, these days everyone's snapping actors on their camera phones every time they leave the house or something if they spot them on the street. Back then they were they were hell raisers, they were hard drinkers, and they, they were they were quite naughty as well. Oh, well, halcyon days, eh? Yeah, yeah, I know. It's not the same being an actor these days, I think. A lot of the fun has gone out of it. <laughs> I'll take your word for it, dear boy. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I hope you've really enjoyed listening to us discuss these two very special films. Suddenly Last Summer is an excellent film, and, and Boom is a rather special film for different reasons. But we do heartily recommend both films. Even if you detest Boom, you probably love it for the Liz Taylor-Richard Burton show. 
and I hope you've enjoyed our show, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. You've been listening to Highbrow Lowbrow, presented by Steve Pyle and Dan Slattery. We'd love to hear from you, and you can contact us by going to our link tree. That's linkpr.ee forward slash highbrow lowbrow. Until next time, keep it highbrow and lowbrow.